Girlfriend, here is your show. Girlfriended, your chance to connect with other women, especially the woman that is most overlooked, yourself. Girlfriended is all about helping you become self-aware, not self-involved. The aim is to provide information that relates to life, which leads to real connections and results in a desire to connect or care for those in need. And now the women want to help you in more ways than you can count every day. From the website, GirlfriendIt.com, and the movement, GirlfriendIt, here are Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan on Toginet.com. Well, this is Patty Wyatt, and you are listening to GirlfriendIt Radio on Toginet. And you don't have to look hard to see that our world is more addicted than ever. It is growing worse day by day with more and more people turning to drugs and alcohol to escape life's problems. In 2017, the National Institute on Drug Abuse estimated that abuse of tobacco, alcohol, and drugs cost the United States more than $740 billion annually as it relates to crime, lost work, productivity, and health care. Yikes! I don't know about you, but this is very depressing. But there is hope. Today we will be talking to the author of a new small group study, Grace-Based Recovery, A Safe Place to Heal and Grow. And this study helps to people that are suffering from addiction and find the only path to true freedom. And this study is written by Jonathan Darty. So welcome, Jonathan. We can't wait to hear everything about the study and the book that you just released. How are you today? Good. Thanks, Patty. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, Jonathan, you um, you have quite the story. You have 20 years of personal recovery experience and over 15 years of professional recovery experience and nearly five years into your own recovery journey that you realized, and I love this, simply behaving well wasn't cutting it. So what happened? Did you have a, a Saul to Paul moment or was this a gradual wake-up call where you kept pushing the snooze button. Tell us a little bit about your story, how you came to um, be writing this book and, and creating this study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, don't, I think uh, every person who's gotten into any kind of addictive behavior where you're, you become consumed and controlled by the thing that you thought you could consume and control, um, it, I think everybody wants to have that Saul to Paul transformation, but uh, for most of us, it's a gradual transition. And for me, it was more of like I came into recovery with the expectation that every addict has coming into recovery, and that is, listen, if I can just stop doing the negative behaviors that I've been doing, then all will be well. And it's kind of like what we describe as the two sides of the freedom coin. Uh, the one side is where all people enter recovery, and that is I want to get away from all of the consequences that my, my negative behaviors have caused, and that's actually good. We want to stop behavior. We want to stop these things that are destroying ourselves and those who love us. But the other side kind of of that freedom coin is, but what is our purpose? What are we pursuing? What are we going after, so to speak, in a positive way that is actually um, helping us to thrive in the way that God designed us? And that's the part that I think gets left out sometimes in recovery. And the reason is, is because I think a lot of recovery programs, not intending to, but I think they become this way, they become performance-based. So uh, kind of my worth and my value is still dependent on what I am doing. So if I 
if I go for a week and I haven't acted out, I think that my performance or my value has actually increased before God. But if I do poorly and I tank and I really act out a lot this week, then I actually think that my value has diminished. And with this message of grace, this message of God's grace is saying that your value is a constant before God because you're made in his image and he proved your worth to him when he sent his son to die on the cross. And so therefore that doesn't fluctuate. Your value before God doesn't fluctuate. So what would happen if you could step into an environment where grace was the foundation and begin to kind of do the work of recovery without feeling like your value as a human being is on a yo-yo? Does that make sense? It, you know, absolutely. And it, it's interesting because this, this morning in my devotions in uh, Matthew 7, I think is what I was reading, where it talks about the path is narrow and exactly what you just said, where I start questioning going, okay, God, you know, how, what's the value in me? Am, am I doing okay? I don't want, I want you to be able to say, yes, I know you, not no, I don't know you. And we, we do that often by works rather than seeing the, the grace. And even when you read scripture, I think that filter comes in. I know for me, I grew up in a more legalistic um, background where it, there were a lot of rules. So you do have a tendency to, to move forward. So I, I, I'm definitely leaning into to what you're saying because I think we, we want a measurement. Well, and I think for me personally, in my own recovery, I was realizing that I was actually trading just I was trading one exhausting treadmill for another. You know, mm-hmm. the, the exhausting treadmill of addiction is that you're doing all these things that uh, have the allure or the promise of giving you satisfaction. In my case, sexual addiction was my addiction. And, you know, the idea was, man, go out and do all these things and it'll give you satisfaction. And pleasure is really where everything is, you know, wonderful. And I was exhausting my life. I was just depleting any kind of energy that I had. And then when I got into recovery, I realized that in the early years, I was trading a an addiction rec- uh, treadmill, which was exhausting me, for a recovery treadmill that was performance-based. So I'm still exhausting myself. I'm just doing it as a as kind of a cleaned up person, <laughs> but I'm still just exhausted because I'm still thinking it's all about me, all about my effort. And so the fundamental paradigm shift that occurs in a grace-based recovery system is you shift the paradigm from being me-centered to actually becoming Christ-centered. And that makes all the difference because now it's like, I don't, I'm recognizing and admitting I don't have the power to change my life. I've proved that. So what would happen if I actually learned to surrender my life to his control? And this doesn't mean that there aren't things that we need to do in recovery. So it's not like grace says, hey, just throw your hands up. There's not going to be any hard work. There's not going to be any you know, difficult choices. But it's saying the fundamental paradigm has shifted away from me thinking I'm the source of power for change in my life to where I actually recognize, no, I've got to humble myself and realize that Christ is the power for the change in my life. And and those those are great words, Jonathan, but how do you apply it? Because because we can say the mm-hmm. words and go, okay, let's shift that and, and I love that. That paradigm shift from being me centered to Christ centered. And yet when we do that, if we've only been operating out of um, that that works, you know, being on that treadmill uh, how do we actually surrender it over yeah. to him? I'm so glad you asked that question. And for me, it was sort of like a light bulb moment when I realized 
I, the the way, the context in which you make this shift from kind of a me-centered life to a Christ-centered life is that you actually have to step into authentic community with other people. See, I think what we want to do is we want to think that we can have our Christ-centered life, and I'm actually using air quotes here, you can't see them. <laughs> we want to have our Christ-centered life still by ourselves in our closet alone. And the reality is, is no, Christ-centered life is fully entrenched in community. And so for me, when I started seeing the unleashing, so to speak, of the power of this Christ-centered life, it was when I actually stepped into a group of other men and said, guys, let me have you peek behind the curtain of my life and tell you all the things that I haven't been telling anybody else and get real about confession and repentance and accountability. And so that's really where the nuts and bolts of this Christ-centered life begin to come together and, and produce a, a difference. Mm, mm. Uh, okay, so I have to go back. Yours was a, a sexual addiction. At what point, because I, we're just hearing so much about you know, what pornography is doing in our world. And, and I, I love what you said, being fully entrenched in community, because that is the way we were wired. We were wired, we were created for relationships. So if we're not connecting and we're not having those relationships, we're going to connect with something. And mm -hmm. that's what's going on. We're connecting to technology, to our phones, to the computer. And then we compartmentalize and live in this fake you know, world where we're not authentic. So at what point did you realize, hey, I, I have a problem here. And we only have three minutes till we go into our, our commercial break and we'll come back and uh, unpack it a little bit more. But was this something that started when you were, you know, younger and you just kept mm -hmm. compartmentalizing? How, what happened here? Yeah, so I was introduced to pornography when I was 12, and it really kind of, it set its hooks in me. And so all throughout junior high and high school and even in college, it was kind of my drug of choice. And that's really what got me on this track towards a full-blown sexual addiction. So it, it morphed beyond pornography. But I think for me, the point at which I started to realize this was actually a problem, it's not that I didn't know that it was uh, an issue, at least from my moral convictions of being raised in a Christian home. I knew it was something that was not good for me. But in terms of when I finally discovered that this is beyond my control, meaning it was now controlling me, I think was when I started to realize I'd, I was, I'd gotten married um, and began to see how habitually I was hiding and lying to my wife. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and you know, looking back on it, it's, it's, I, it's that's not a healthy way to build a relationship, mm -hmm. to lie and hide. You don't build intimacy. You don't build oneness in that kind of relationship. So I think that that's what, that was the beginning of me realizing that I don't have control of this like I think I do. And um, but it would take much more before I would actually come to my senses, so to speak. And it actually took my wife leaving for me to actually kind of hit my breaking point where I knew I've got to do something serious about this. Otherwise, um, I, I might not even live much longer because at that point I was suicidal um, because I brought not only the pornography into my marriage, but eventually I brought infidelity and all kinds of other sexual sins into my marriage um, to the point that my wife eventually left. And that was actually the catalyst that kind of brought me to my knees of, I can't, I can't keep pretending that I can control my life anymore. I have no control, and I need help. 
Hmm. So, but to me, the big deal was the secrets and the lies. And so I always, I always kind of ask people, hey, what are you hiding from the people that care about you the most? That can start to indicate the things that might actually have power over you is the secrets that you're carrying. Hmm. Well, on that note, that's a great question. Uh, what are you hiding from the, the people that you love? We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with our special guest, Jonathan Dougherty. This is Girlfriended on Togginet. Don't forget to tell your friends to check it out on Girlfriended.com. It's time to discover it, connect it, propel it, Girlfriend it. And we'll be right back with more Girlfriended Radio right after these. were in youth ministry and knew nothing about church planning. But as we felt God leading us to start a new church, we were connected with Stadia. They gave us coaching and personal care, giving us the confidence that we needed. They even have a ministry called Bloom that's designed to support me as a lead planner spouse. We now lead a church in Cleveland, Ohio that's transforming lives, and we couldn't have done it without Stadia. Stadia plants churches that intentionally care for children. We won't stop until every child has a church. For more information, go to stadia.cc. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to Girlfriended Radio. A chance for you to let your hair down, curl up with a mug of whatever you love, and have some nice girl talk. It's Girlfriended, the radio show on Toginet.com. And now back to the show with your hosts, Patty and Lisa. Welcome back. We are talking to our guest, Jonathan Dougherty. And Jonathan just wrote the book, Grace-Based Recovery, A Safe Place to Heal and Grow. And Jonathan is the founder of Be Broken Ministries and the popular podcast and radio show, Pure Sex. Well, Jonathan, we left with that question of how honest are we being um, to the people that we love. And we were kind of unpacking your story of what happened when you're your wife finally leaves you, and I have to ask you a couple questions. That uh, were you a Christian during this season of your life, and what happened that your wife finally found out? 
Yes, so I I came to trust Christ when I was a a little boy, and so all of these things happened while I was a a Christian. It's interesting, when I actually did get into recovery, there were some, you know, well-meaning folks that sort of tried to call into question whether I actually was saved before all of this stuff was happening, and thankfully God confirmed that because it's by His grace that we're saved, that uh, I absolutely was um, part of His family um, from the time I was a little boy. Um, and so this means that that even Christians can get very derailed, very distracted, um, very divided even in our own soul regarding many things that we can get wrapped up in addictively. And so when um, uh, when I finally did come clean with my wife, and part of this, part of the reason I came clean with my wife was because I was I was suicidal during this point in my life, and I think um, I almost felt this need to, to, at least in my own mind, to think, listen, if I'm going to follow through with suicide, I I, I don't want to write a note, I don't want to leave her in the dark, so I just confessed everything on one random Tuesday night, which. Well, we are huge proponents of full disclosure when an addict needs to reveal to their loved ones whatever they've done. Uh, this is not necessarily the method that we would suggest. It's just, you know, throw everything out there on a random Tuesday night without any kind of preparation whatsoever. Uh, but that was my, my story. That was my case. And, and you know, through a series of events that happened in the week after that confession, my wife finally determined she's out. She was gone. And, um, and, and she did the right thing by protecting herself from more harm. I mean, I was I was lying to her. I was cheating on her. I was being a general jerk to live with. And um, she didn't know at this point at all. She did not know that you were cheating. She didn't know you. So you literally threw up on her, and she was unaware. Yes, she did not know. Now, I mean, when she looks back on that time, uh, it's it's not as if she didn't know something was wrong. I mean, I I always put it this way: God gave women something that He didn't give men, and it's called intuition. <laughs> and it, anytime I have my guy friends try to tell me they have it, I'm like, "You're fooling yourself. You don't have yeah. it." <laughs> yeah. And I, I like to say it's women have this ability to know even when they don't know, and I actually think that is a good God given ability that uh-huh. that women possess because every woman knows when something's off like in somebody that they love they, they might not be able to know the specifics they might not know all the details but they have this sense of knowing and so my wife knew things weren't right she just didn't know what the specifics were so when the specifics came out it was like a whole new wave of heartbreak and just you know pain in her life um, and in order for her to just kind of get away from me perpetuating even more pain in her life, she she left. And uh, we were separated for nine months, And uh, but, but her leaving was the catalyst for me getting serious about taking a look in the mirror and realizing this is not something that I can pretend isn't real anymore or something that I can try to keep hidden. Um, it's the 600-pound gorilla in my life that is just destroying everything. And that is when I stepped into community. I, I, I connected with a good counselor. I got into a group of men and started to realize that the lies that I had been telling myself of, you know, nobody's like me, nobody's done these types of things, nobody's thought these kind of thoughts, all became uh, dispelled when I got into community because I realized, hey, we're all broken. There's some, every single one of us is broken in some way. We're all sinful. And it, it was starting to breathe life into my sort of dead soul, this idea of could the grace of God really 
transform my life. And that's when I really started to understand grace from a whole new perspective. I had understood grace, I think, up to that point in my life from more of a theological or intellectual standpoint. But now I was beginning to experience grace in how it was actually intersecting with all of the broken parts of my life, all of the addiction, all the strongholds. And that's when I began to learn these principles of a grace-based recovery, of community and accountability and forgiveness and all those kinds of things. Um, and my wife was also going through her own healing journey, unbeknownst to me, because when she left, she said she didn't want to speak to me or see me ever again. Mm-hmm. And so she's gone. And it was during that season that I actually learned something that uh, I bring to mind very often, even now, is that I'll never be able to be as good a husband as God can be to my wife. And he proved during that season just how tender and caring and compassionate and healing he was to her. Um, he, he is one who keeps his promises of never leaving us and never forsaking us. And so he did a major work in her life as he was doing a major work in mine. And nine months later, we were, uh, I don't use this word lightly, but miraculously reconciled. And so we have been uh, married for, it'll be 23 years this December, and we've been back together since 2000. So we've been able to enjoy 18 years kind of post what my wife called hell on earth. Um, <laughs> and so it's been, it's been amazing. We've been able to just have incredible blessings of kids and ministry and uh, really been able to share our story with others in hopes that it draws them out of their own secrecy and out of their own uh, hiding to realize that it's so much better to walk in the light and step into communities that are safe. And that's really what grace-based recovery is all about, is helping establish and create those communities where it, it's, they're safe enough to actually share your full story, not your pretend, you know, um, caramelized story, <laughs> but the actual real you in all your broken places. Are you able to go to your wife now and say, hey, last night was not a good night for me? Um, you know, I I slipped back into some old habits. Or do you have somebody else that you go to for that? I mean, so often, and you kind of... Uh, alluded to that where it's not just a a one-time gig. You don't just go, Mm -hmm. okay, God, I surrender it all. Now I'm going to believe in your grace that you offer. And, you know, as I go forward, I I love that you said miraculously reconciled and yet it's daily. It's so daily. So who do you Mm -hmm. go to, you know, just for our listeners out there to go, okay, wow. So Jonathan's made it now. He's, he's out in the clear, you know, but, but here's the, yeah, here's the benefit of having nearly 20 years of personal experience on this journey. Is I can start to see sort of seasons as they've formed. And so the good news is really the last 8 to 10 years of this season have been experiencing what I call real freedom. I tell people today, listen, by God's grace, I'm 100% free from my addiction. But I followed up by saying I'm not free from temptation. And there's a distinction between temptation and actually following through and sinning or being bound up in an addiction. But I would say those first five to ten years were really marked by a lot of key transformational aspects. And one was just going from a place of behaviorally acting out to not behaviorally acting out. But then 
kind of this, the next season was realizing that God was wanting to do a work much deeper and actually change desires in my heart. I remember the first time, I mean, it was probably maybe six or seven years into my journey when uh, I remember the first time I woke up and realized my very first thought of the day was, I want to do what's right today. <laughs> and, and that may sound kind of crazy, but it's like, how many people in the world today, even Christians, wake up in the morning and their first thought is, I don't want to screw up today. Yeah. Instead of, I actually have a desire to do what is right today. That, to me, was proving God was doing a work at a much deeper level than just, hey, don't act out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to answer your question about accountability and talking to my wife and those kind of things, fairly early on it was established that, uh, I mean, I had full accountability all the, re- all the way around with, my, uh, with some guys, with my counselor, and then gave my wife access to those people. I'm not saying that's the way everybody should do it, but for me, to the depth that I had hurt my wife, um, I gave my wife free access to my counselor and to my accountability guys that she could ask them anything she wanted without my knowledge, and I'd be okay with that. I actually had to sign a form with my counselor to allow him to do that. Um, But nowadays, the way I usually instruct people is, especially for men in this kind of situation, is guys need their guys to kind of go into the specifics of the details of what they need to be held accountable for, but they need to share with their wives their journey. And and what I mean by that is, like, let's say uh, if a guy has been struggling throughout the day with temptation, I think he goes to his men in that case and says, hey, here are the things I'm struggling with. I'd like some accountability on just, you know, certain aspects of uh, maybe the Internet or my email or something like that. If he hasn't crossed a line of behavior, then what he might share with his wife that night is, hey, could you pray for me? You know, I've been sharing with my guys some stuff that's been going on. I haven't crossed any baseline behaviors or anything, but just want to just want to to ask if you'd be praying for me. So there's a, there's a distinction in kind of how we might communicate in those realities. The thing I always want to say to couples, though, especially, is you got to watch your own heart about what are you trying to hide? Are you trying to use this context of these other people that you're being accountable to as a way of hiding things from your spouse? Then you've kind of gotten into some dangerous territory. Or are you wanting to use that specific context of those same sex accountability partners to be able to grow in your integrity and your character so that you become a better spouse for your mate? Um, those are two very different motivations for the accountability. And does that, does that make sense? Oh, I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm typing away here, Jonathan, and I, I hope our listeners are just gaining so much from this. And we're, we're at the end of our show. And if you can give us just one tip, I just want to say again, you're, we are talking with Jonathan Dougherty, and he's the author of Grace-Based Recovery. And, uh, you know, how he is sharing how you can get that freedom from addiction and the, just the lifelong process that you went through. And if there's just one tip in the next 30 seconds that you can share, to our listeners. Yeah, so to me, the, the, the biggest issue is coming out into the light, into a safe community. So the good news is there's a lot more resources today for grace-based recovery and addiction recovery. And uh, I would just recommend if you go to gracebasedrecovery.com, you can get information about the book and, and see if it's something that would be beneficial for your context. But walking in the light is what it's all about. No more secrets, no more hiding, no more shame.
This is Girlfriended on Togginap. Don't forget to tell your friends to check it out on Girlfriended.com. It's time to discover it, connect it, propel it, Girlfriend it. And we'll be right back with more Girlfriended Radio right after these. We were thriving in a youth ministry when God clearly called us out of our Bible Belt comfort zone to plant a church in California. Stadia's 90 plus percent success rate gave us all the confidence we needed. They also cared for us through amazing support networks to encourage us like Bloom, a one of a kind ministry for planters' wives. It's here I find deep friendships with like minded gals who want to change lives. Stadia plants churches that intentionally care for children. We won't stop until every child has a church. For more information, go to stadia.cc. found yourself in an airplane seated next to a non-stop talker that you really don't have anything at all in common with? When I fly, I usually want to catch up on my reading and not have to listen to an explaterator. It's even worse if they're a philodox. That's a person who just loves their own opinion. Well, now a Facebook app lets you choose your own seatmate before you fly. According to an article in USA Today, social media startups are bringing together compatible flyers before they take their seats. That's good news for people lovers, otherwise known as philodemics. A number of apps such as Plainly and Satisfy are helping travelers meet not only online, but in person. Think the Match.com of travel. I love flying and have been to almost as many places as my luggage. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. You may think that getting five or more servings of vegetables and fruit a day is a daunting task and may even seem unrealistic. With the price of almost everything increasing, some people think it's too expensive to buy fruit and vegetables. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, you can buy three servings of fruits and four servings of vegetables for well under $2 a day. If the taste of fruit and vegetables is not your favorite, find something low-calorie and delicious to dip them in. My children love to dip fresh vegetables like carrots, celery, broccoli, and cauliflower in ranch dressing for a nutritious and tasty snack. Dipping them into yogurt is also scrumptious. Be creative and make sure to eat at least five servings of fruit and vegetables a day. By doing so, you will watch your health increase and your weight decrease. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back to Girlfriended Radio. A chance for you to let your hair down, curl up with a mug of whatever you love, and have some nice girl talk. It's Girlfriended, the radio show on toginet.com. And now back to the show with your hosts, Patty and Lisa. Well, welcome. Our next guest is Laura Lee Craker, and she's the editor of Homespun, Amish and Mennonite Women in Their Own Words. And I was just laughing on the commercial break with Laura Lee. I said, we just went from sexual addictions to now talking with Amish and Mennonite women and their stories. And she mentioned, <laughs> yes, quite the whiplash there. So uh, we, we are in for just a crazy day of people's stories and how God always offers grace. But a little bit about Laura. She's a freelance journalist, a blogger, and also a speaker. She was an entertainment writer for the Grand Rapids Press for 17 years, and she's been featured in many media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, 
Time and People. She's the author of 15 books, including Anna Green Gables, My Daughter and Me, My Journey to Heaven, uh, and the New York Times bestseller, Through the Story with Lynn Spears. So welcome, Laura Lee. How are you today? You know, I'm not bad. It's a beautiful day here in Michigan, and the sun is shining, and uh, we've had rain the last few days, so I'm hoping to get out on my patio sometime today, and uh, hopefully the cushions are not too damp still. (laughs) That's my big hope. Your your big hope is our big prayer because we would love. I'm in Arizona and we would love to have damp cushions rather than uh, 110 wow. degrees. Wow! <laughs> so, yeah, interesting, right? Like you yeah. know, be careful what you ask for, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, I um, have read some of your um, the the writings here, and I love 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 um, just the whole concept here of stories from Amish and Mennonite women. My One of my very close friends from college was Mennonite, and that was really my first, you know, awareness of the Amish culture, the Mennonite culture, and uh, he was from Shipshawana, Indiana, so I went to... Oh, go yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Several two hours times. away from me, so... Okay. Yeah, and the whole horse and buggy, and he owns, you know, bed and breakfast and uh, restaurants there. And I got to tell you, I, I'm just all things like leaning in. And, and the other um, partner here for our show that she wasn't able to be on here today, we actually went back there together to Shipshawana, and she cracked me up because she kept trying to figure it out. Like you would see a horse and buggy pulling a speedboat, you know. <laughs> They're <laughs> like, wait, wait, yeah. wait, this does not match up to what you guys told me, you know, that this is not going with the Amish rules. And finally, my friend said, you know what, quit trying to figure it out. It's just, <laughs> you, you can't figure it out. Um, oh, no, there's there are many, many, as with all people groups, there are inconsistencies. So, yes. Yes. So tell us a little bit about, um, I, I love how you said, uh, you, you're a simple Mennonite girl and yet you didn't know anything was peculiar about being Mennonite. So at what point did you realize, Oh, okay. There, there's a different world out there. Well, um, so I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is, uh, most people don't know this unless you're from Winnipeg, but it's a real Mennonite hub. And um, many, many thousands upon thousands of Mennonites uh, immigrated to Winnipeg uh, from Ukraine, so uh, where they were for 200 years. So um, I just thought everyone knew what a Mennonite was, and I didn't think it was, you know, I was in my culture like a fish is in water, and you don't really know any different. And um, But I remember I went to um, a youth conference, and it was uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, so that's not Mennonite. And I met a girl in the bathroom, and we were talking, and she said, she was wide-eyed, and she said, I can't believe you're wearing purple. and I'm like why wouldn't I be wearing purple and she said because you're Mennonite I didn't think Mennonites could wear purple so it's so funny there are all these misconceptions but the kind of Mennonite I am is Mennonite brethren which um, I like to say is Baptist with a German accent and so I grew up very you know uh, modern in some ways I mean uh, cars 
Um, you know, all of that electricity, no buggies, no horses and buggies, unfortunately. And um, the only sort of nod to that, that lifestyle was uh, my two grandmothers. They never cut their hair, so their hair was always in a bun. And uh, they never wore pants, so they always wore skirts or long, you know, long dresses. So they did look to the casual observer like an old order Mennonite or or an Amish person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how how did you feel about that? I I know uh, even for me, my my mom when when we went to Shipshawana, she was saying, I think it's interesting because the concept, and, and I'm not bagging on somebody else's culture. It's out of curiosity. Sure. The, 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 the concept is to not bring attention to yourself. And so, you know, going <laughs> with, with scripture or saying, you know, don't wear this ornate stuff, you know, where it's very me centered. And yet, you know, when we were there, my mom was like, she goes, I just keep staring at those pins that's holding their shirt together. Yeah, It's really drawing attention. She goes, it's kind of the opposite effect of, you know, it's not this elaborate ornate button, but it's a pen that I keep staring at. And so even for your, your grandma to not cut their hair, uh, yeah. what do you have those conversations with your grandma? Well, uh, they spoke almost only German and, you know, we loved each other and everything, but, and there was a deep relationship, but it, it wasn't a lot of talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I knew a bit of German and I could pick up on the gist and they knew a bit of English. So we, we made our way, but I remember one time, um, I was, I came home from college and I took my bike and I rode over to my Oma's house and Oma's German and Dutch for grandma and um she was a she's a spitfire of a lady and um she she pointed to my skirt and she or maybe maybe I was wearing shorts cuz I was on a bike and she she sort of tisk tisked you know and <laughs> shook her head and you know but she was sort of had a twinkle in her eye while she said it but um that was sort of my only encounter with her um you know, judging me or whatever, but uh, she didn't, I, I heard from my mom that she didn't like it when her girls, like her daughters-in-law, would wear makeup or jewelry, which my mom did. So, there, you know, I just, we all just felt that Oma was one foot in, in the old country. She was born in yeah. 1903 on a Mennonite colony, so... We didn't judge her very harshly either. We were sort of like she is a product of her her culture and but I'll tell you modesty to this day I hear from my mom I'm 50. I hear from my mother about modesty things. So it's uh it's pretty strong. It's steeped in. It's kind of baked in, I would say, that that concept of modesty. Yeah. And and it's the same for me as well. I, I'm your age, and I I still can't get over some of the things that are posted in in social media because I I have a tendency to lean towards the modesty and uh you yeah I just pray for my girls to stay modest. <laughs> it's, that's a yeah, hard one. it's a very interesting conversation. I have a daughter as well, and and just that uh, you know sometimes I think how much of this is my Mennonite upbringing, and how much of this is is really something she should not wear. So. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, in the Amish culture. I know it was it was interesting, you know, when they shun their their children. There was one story where the son was shunned, but he would every night the mom would bring his dinner out and put it on the back porch for him. Do you, do you see that still taking place in in your world where you are? Well, I wouldn't say like the kind of Mennonite I am. There, there really isn't a lot of shunning. Um, I had an uncle who was shunned. Um, I mean, many, many, many years ago. For um, well, he got his girlfriend pregnant, so that was you know they both got shunned. And um, but that was the the only exposure I ever had. And I think as um, the years progressed. Um, the Mennonite church definitely got away from that. Um, the Amish church or the Amish, uh, culture, I should say, is, uh, yeah, they're, they, uh, they like to shun people still. And, um, I shouldn't say they like to, but, um, I don't know. I can't imagine how painful it is for, um, for someone to be shunned. I really, I really can't. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you, we, we just have a, a minute here, Laura Lee, before we go into a commercial break, but uh, some of your stories, I didn't get a chance to finish the book and which by the way, um, just an amazing book and how it reads and it, you, you write or edit now, wait, it's, you were actually the editor here um, for the, these stories, but uh, it it reads like I'm sitting here talking to you right now. <laughs> oh, good. So, well, that was that was definitely the goal, and uh, I wanted it to be very conversational and and from the heart. Yeah, and it, it, it definitely is. I want to hear a little bit more of the the struggles um, that you share in the in the in the book here but uh, we're going to go into a commercial break right now and just in. 15 seconds. Can you say how they can find you and your, um, do you have a website that they can get to you? Sure. Yeah. My website is lauraleecraker.com. Unfortunately, it's down right now. It's being debugged, but it'll be up and running within a couple of days. And on Instagram, where I love to be, um, my, my name is the bookseller's daughter. This is Girlfriended on Toginap. Don't forget to tell your friends to check it out on Girlfriended.com. It's time to discover it, connect it, propel it, Girlfriend it. And we'll be right back with more Girlfriended Radio right after these. My husband and I have always wanted to plant a new church. After 10 years, God finally affirmed that in us. We thought we were on our own. We never imagined that there was an organization that could partner with us. That's when we got connected with Stadia. They have incredible systems in place to support our family, including a network designed specifically for me, the spouse of a church planner. We could have never done it without Stadia. Stadia plants churches that intentionally care for children. We won't stop until every child has a church. 
For more information, go to stadia.cc. wondered what it's like to live in a lighthouse. Sounds romantic, but could you go without the internet, HBO, cell service, and running water? Sally Snowman, the lighthouse keeper at Boston Light, says it's worth it for the feeling she gets when she sits outside by the railing and takes in the view with her morning coffee. What's the study of lighthouses called? Fairology. Of course, living in a lighthouse comes with a great amount of responsibility when fog or rounce rubble hobble the tumult of thunder comes along. Wickies is a nickname given to early lighthouse keepers who spent a great deal of time trimming the wick on the lamp in order to keep it burning brightly. Manning a lighthouse is not for dartle dum doos. That's a word coined in 1893, meaning folks without energy. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Girlfriended Radio, a chance for you to let your hair down, curl up with a mug of whatever you love, and have some nice girl talk. It's Girlfriended, the radio show on Toginet.com. And now back to the show with your hosts, Patty and Lisa. Well, we're talking with Laura Lee Craker. She's the editor of Homespun, Amish and Mennonite Women in Their Own Words. And uh, Laura Lee, we had to jump into a commercial break, but you were in the midst of sharing your, your website and where we can go to get this book, Homespun. So will you just say it again, the, the website that they can go to? Sure. Uh, my website is laureleecraker.com, so it's L-O-R-I-L-E-E-C-R-A-K-E-R.com, and it's currently down with some bugs or whatever, And uh, but my, my guy, my IT guy is working on it, and it should be restored in, you know, in no time, and... Um, <laughs> I'm also on Facebook as Laura Lee Craker and on Twitter as Laura Lee Craker and on Instagram, which I love, as the bookseller's daughter. Awesome. And I just want you to, if you could, can you share just one of the, the stories that you have in your, in your book? Um, so that way people know they need to run and go read this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, of course, I have my favorites, and uh, one of my favorites is called When You Put Your Money in God's Bank by Danielle Byler, and it's about a young Mennonite woman who um, really just talks about um, how God provided for her day by day, and she um, she had no resources. She was a... Um, living off her savings kind of thing, and she felt called to to teach some kids um, from the Mennonite community as sort of a hired homeschooler, if that makes sense. But, but she had no money, but God provided everything for her down to the, the gas in her tank. And she would think, I am never going to make it to my destination because I'm on E and there's this many miles and God would miraculously, you know, as she was faithful, God would be faithful as well and just, um, I don't know, put gas in her tank and it, and, um, he got that, that car never broke down and it never ran out of gas. So, so it was really encouraging to me to see or to read about her story of, of how, 
you know, she was given a car and a place to live and and how she just she just made her way and God provided. Mm. What are what are some of the interesting just the contrast of as you're you know editing these stories of some of the Amish cultures that you found uh, I, I hate to say on the crazy side but just uh, the difference between the Mennonite and the Amish. Yeah, well, um, you know, and I love the Amish. They um, they're wonderful people, and they're a fascinating and um, you know just amazingly countercultural um, culture. They're just amazing how they they really live. As you were saying, your mother noticed those pins um, since 1693. They've been pinning themselves, and uh, they won't even wear buttons. So. That's uh, it's amazing to me. They're fascinating. But, um, you know, obviously sometimes I think um, it seems a bit extreme. Like um, I have one story that um, it's called Remains of the Doll, and it's about an Amish woman reflecting on how um, she just really wanted a doll with eyes, like, you know, like a doll that you would buy in a store instead of like a rag doll sewn by her mother or whatever. And the Amish sew everything. Um, they honestly make their own bras. They they just make everything themselves. So somehow um, her mother got a hold of a, a like an English doll, right? English Englishers or anyone who are, who are not Amish, basically, or not Mennonite. And... Um, and she just really loved this doll. Well, then her grandfather, who I think was a bishop in the Amish church, he had a word with her mother, and he said, I don't think those girls should have that doll. That doll is worldly. And um, so she had the doll taken away from her. Oh. And I read this, and the way I took it, it was like a terrible thing um, that a grandfather would... You know, I mean, grand, grandpas are supposed to give you dolls and play, have tea parties with you. They're not supposed to take your doll away. Yeah. So that was upsetting to me, you know, kind of the, the huge juxtaposition between their culture and their standards and ours. Yeah, yeah. And with, with in the, the Amish culture, uh, you would think a story like that, that this child as she grew up would look back and go, okay, really? I can't even, because I know some of the things I look back in coming from a little bit more of a legalistic background where I go, whoa, like where, <laughs> where is that? Yeah, instrument? it's really a you whoa know? kind of thing. Um, right, like that's so man-made, but, you know. Pardon me? Oh, I, I was just going to say you you have a tendency to go, wait, that is that is not god that is so man-made when you go into what's worldly and what's not. As they get older, um, do you find that many of them just go back into the, the Amish culture just because that's their community? Or are there quite a few that leave the Amish community? Yeah, I mean, definitely, um, you know, I think really the percentages have stayed steady. It's not like um, they're having more people leave, which is interesting. But they have so many children per person. Um, I mean, I uh, when I was writing my book, Money Secrets of the Amish, um, I met with a family who had 13 children. And, and that is not 
out of the ordinary for the Amish. And so they really repopulate themselves. So they, they do have a number of people leaving, but it's sort of their population stays steady because they have so many children. Huh. That's and it would be it would be hard to leave when you have siblings, and if you leave, you're going to be shunned so that you're so alone. If you you know leave that culture, um, it would be easy just to go back and and live the way you've always lived. Yeah, for sure. And I think that um, <laughs> what I've heard is, you know, all these Amish romance novels that people read and um, are so popular. Um, the truth is, I was told by someone very close to the Amish community that the girls almost never leave. Almost never does a girl up and fall in love with, you know, some Polish guy she met at, you know, a gas station or something. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Um, but the boys will sometimes leave. They will sometimes meet an English girl and leave. But I think what, what I've seen, too, is a couple, maybe with children, will decide to leave. And so they will decide that it's, it's not for their family anymore. So, th- so they are less... Um, I mean, it's still very alienating and sad, but if they leave as a family, they still have each other. Yeah. Then that makes more sense that you would, as a couple, uh, talk about it and realize, is this really what we want for for our, our family? Yeah, well, for sure. What do you ultimately hope readers will gain from reading this book, Homespun? Well, I hope that uh, they will feel refreshed because uh, it's a refreshing um, tone I, that I was going for in this book. And uh, these writers, many of them have never been published before, and they're beautiful writers. And I was blown away by the quality of the writing. And it's thrilling to me to think that these women who are unknown, you know, have their words um, – you know, out there in the world. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But I hope that, that people will be, um, have a sense of peace because, um, that is a really core value of, of Amish and Mennonite cultures is peace. And, and they're not as distracted as we are. And they're, they're more, um, simple. And they, they like sort of the wholesome, um, you know, stay at home, pick flowers, um, you know, bake bread kind of thing. And and it's just sort of a, even though I'm very different from that, I've never baked bread that was not in the <laughs> bread machine, et cetera. I, I found myself drawn to them and their simplicity and their peace and, and their deep love for, you know, for their fellow human beings and for God. Mm. Yeah. You also talk a little bit about their, their hospitality because that's what I lean into. We get so rushed with everything, you know, it's, we're connected to technology in such a way that we, you know, the other day I was, uh, training in a place where it was such high security. I wasn't allowed to have my phone and I felt like I, my arm was severed, you know, for eight hours without having my, my phone to connect. And how sad is that? And and we just, we just have a couple minutes before the end of our show, but, uh, what 
did you lean into the hospitality part? Yeah, the hospitality part, it just emerged immediately, that theme, and and I knew that was the first theme that I knew would be in the book, and there's six themes in the book. And for me, it was very encouraging to, to just read about women who, um, you know, just uh, made a longer table and put more chairs up to the table and didn't worry about if everything was HGTV perfect and... <laughs> You know, and I think some of these women, some of the Mennonite women might watch HGTV, but I think, um, I just think there's a different um, mindset at work here where it's about love and grace and welcoming, and that's what the, that's what the section is called is welcome, and I remember being greeted by my, my Mennonite relatives without fail. Uh, they would say, welcome, welcome, you know, with the German accent, and um I don't, I don't hear people say welcome to me when I come to their home. Mm-hmm. So that to me is a very Mennonite um, idea that they really hold dear. And I thought I'm going to be more welcoming in my own life and I'm not going to worry about the weeds on my patio. I'm going to have people out there because it's summer and uh, the cushions will only be damp for a short time. <laughs> well, I, I like that and that's a great trip. Let's be more welcoming and uh, not worry about, oh, I can't have people over. And I just did that the other day. My my front porch is is a mess. But we are at the end of our show, Laura Lee. Thank you so much for being on our show today and sharing this awesome book. And I hope all of us will go out there and welcome others. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a part of this special program, Girlfriended, the show dedicated to the most important woman you know, yourself. It's the show.